0: All right, we are back and in the 11 minutes or so we have left I want to kind of do a grab bag of material starting with a book I pulled off the shelf I've been trying to pare down my home library because it's out of control and I pulled off censored 2003 which was the first of the series of books uh, of the project censored uh, type that we used on this program and I thumbed through it to see how many things were still relevant and sadly uh, well I think most of them still are something we talked about a couple of weeks on the show uh, that's still simmering, is the issue of the Saudi connection to 9-11. Chapter 2 of Project Censors 2003 book, I Devote, is about this. It's titled 9-11 Before and Beyond, a Critical Analysis. As far as we know, this paragraph remains as important uh, today as it was back in 2003. I think I'll just quote from it. After the 9-11 attacks, Saudi Ambassador Bandar bin Sultan said that private planes carrying the kingdom's deputy defense minister and the governor of Mecca, both members of the royal family, were grounded and initially caught up in the FBI dragnet. Both planes, one jumbo jet carrying 100 family members and the other 40, were eventually allowed to leave when airports reopened. U.S. officials apparently needed little persuasion from the Saudis that the family included no material witnesses. Within eight weeks after the attacks, over 1,000 suspects and potential witnesses were detained by the FBI, yet none of the family members were ever questioned regarding the whereabouts of Osama bin Laden or the events surrounding September 11th. I would say this still remains a burning question as to how that happened, especially since I believe after this, Greg Palast and others uncovered the fact that some of those people had definitely been in contact with some of the 9-11 hijackers. You'd think that'd be worth at least a questioning session or two, wouldn't you? Another piece, probably one of the greatest pieces that I've ever seen in any of the Project Censored materials, was the article in Chapter 6 by Mark Crispin Miller, titled, The 10 Big Media Giants. But uh, taking the number at 10, the Big 10, Uh, If you examine what AOL, Time Warner, and General Electric, and Viacom, and Disney, and Liberty Media Corporation, and News Corp, and Vivendi Universal, and Bertelsmann, and AT&T, and Sony all own, you'll find out that, well, those 10 own a significant percentage of all of the media in this country and around the world. For me, that really brings home uh, why it is we need independent voices Investigative journalism, people like the News and Review, people like Greg palace who we've had on this program three times, people like Robert Perry, who we need to have on again, people like Russ Baker, who we also need to have on again, people like Peter Dale Scott and David Talbot, both of which we will have on again, etc., (laughs) etc. Long story short, it's really sad to note that Project Censored's big issues of 12 years ago, are very much still with us, and in many cases, even more of a concern. But uh, let me speed this up and see if I can't pull some items here out of the grab bag. Gotta love this headline off the Associated Press. Campaign 2016, Iowa voters grill Bush on family ties. Yes, apparently those canny voters out there in Iowa have sussed out the fact that it appears that Jeb Bush is connected to both George W. Bush, and George Herbert Walker Bush. Jeb, of course, is trying to downplay these connections. I love his comment. This is kind of a tough game for me to be playing, to be honest with you. Uh, I'm my own person. Yeah, those other people named Bush, yeah, I I, I know them. You gotta love this guy. He made the comment uh, during one of the debates, I think, that ISIS didn't exist when my brother was president. Well, a little fact-checking reveals that Well, technically he's correct... A group with the name ISIS did not exist under President Bush. The group's origins, however, trace back to 2004. You know, the year after his brother invaded Iraq, tore it apart, and allowed for Islamic fundamentalists to become more prominent in that nation. Of course, we do have to point out with some sadness, as has Lincoln Chafee, candidate for the Democratic nomination, that, you know, Hillary Clinton voted to authorize that war back in 2002. As you may recall, candidate Barack Obama wasn't shy about pointing that out back in 2008. You know, we haven't heard much from Lincoln Chafee. We we hope that he will, uh, you know, m- get some traction here. Back in 2002, he was the only he was then a Republican, and he was the only Republican to vote against giving George Bush the authority to go ahead in Iraq. Something he should be given credit for. When Hillary Clinton says. I thought I had acted in good faith and made the best decision I could with the information I had, and I wasn't alone in getting it wrong, but, but I still got it wrong, plain and simple. Said Lincoln Chafee correctly, she didn't do her homework, and we live with the ramifications today. By the way, I didn't know this till I read David Lightman's article about Chafee from the McClatchy Washington Bureau, back, but but but, but that back in 2002, he called the Republican vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin, a cocky wacko. And you know, you just have to really like that phrase, a cocky wacko. And you know, we we love talking about water issues uh, here on this program, but haven't done so lately. We thought we just would have to give it a rest. Everyone's talking about an El Nino saving us, and God, we hope so. But I really was drawn to this piece in The Economist about water. In this case, water rights in Tanzania. The study the magazine cited was called Sharing common resources in patriarchal and status-based societies. Evidence from Tanzania. This was published in Feminist Economist in July of this year. Noted The Economist. In the semi-arid lowlands in southern Tanzania, water is hard to come by like it is in many parts of California. Villagers rely on irrigation to grow maize, potatoes, and spinach. Informal and often woolly codes govern how much water in each farmer diverts to their own fields. Doesn't this remind you of California? And how much they leave for their neighbors downstream. The piece notes, some farmers naturally turn out to be more grasping than others. Oh, this, this is like California. Economists typically see such decisions as irreducible. There is no accounting for individuals' values and preferences. But this new study investigates why there is such variation in generosity among the farmers of Tanzania. The researchers asked villagers to rank each farmer's social status on a scale of one to four. They then invited the farmers to take part in a game in which participants had to decide how much water they would take under different scenarios. Participants were paid small sums, which varied according to how well they did in the game. They received more money if they reaped a bigger harvest by taking more than their share of water, for instance, but less if the other villagers fined them for violating water-sharing norms. The study found that in hypothetical times of scarcity, only high-status women shared the water fairly. Low-status men and women would share fairly when water was plentiful, but were stingier when water was scarce. High-status men hogged water all the time. Rather than simply conclude that some farmers were more altruistic than others, the researchers split the participants into groups by status and gender to discuss the outcome. Rich and powerful men, it turned out, were less worried about being greedy, Either because the gains dwarfed the fines or because they assumed their downstream neighbors would not dare complain. Boy, this does remind you of California. One villager said she had to keep quiet since the person overusing the water was influential. By contrast, another said low status people are not expected to break the rules. Women, even of high status, also seemed inhibited. The apparent generosity of women, and the poor in short, may not be the product of compassion but of discrimination. Yep, like California. Here we're supposed to let all of our lawns go brown while corporate farmers plant evermore almonds that are irrigated by California's water projects. Well, in part from the water we saved by not watering our lawns. We li- by the way, we like the pieces that the Almond Board or whatever they are I've been trying to insert on public radio and other places saying, you know, almond trees are no different than any other trees. And in fact, we here at Radio Parallax have a public service announcement from the Almond Growers Association, which is as follows. Thanks for the water, suckers. Of course, we would note that the idea that the Almond Growers would say something like that really constitutes an opinion that is ours alone and does not in any way necessarily reflect that of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. Especially those parts of the University of California supported by agribusiness interests. All right, in the minute or so we have left in this program, I want to cite some people that should have gotten more credit for their good work. Everyone's heard of penicillin, and probably everybody hearing my voice has taken it at least once in their lifetime. Most people know it was discovered by Alexander Fleming. Almost nobody knows that it was made commercially available by Margaret Hutchinson. Margaret Hutchinson enlisted the citric acid fermentation tanks over at the Pfizer Corporation, as well as some chemical purification techniques for gas, to allow her to produce 650 billion doses for the Allies by 1945. This was quite a breakthrough, especially in World War II. Just three years earlier in 1942, supplies of penicillin were so limited that doctors used half of the United States supply to treat one patient. Margaret Hutchison, we salute you. And let's close by saluting Margaret Sanger, Catherine McCormick, Gregory Pincus, and John Rock. Names not as familiar as they should be, because those four people, probably foremost among others, they weren't alone, but probably foremost among all others, are responsible for the development of the birth control pill. It should be noting, looking back at contraception, that condoms and diaphragms were illegal in most U.S. states from 1873 through World War I, And availability was spotty for decades afterwards. Margaret Sanger was an activist and an advocate for birth control. When heiress Catherine McCormick asked her which women's cause she should devote her fortune, Sanger put her in touch with biologist Gregory Pincus, who began working on contraceptives. Pincus soon proved that artificial hormones could stop ovulation in rabbits and he brought in John Rock, a respected Catholic gynecologist, to lend the team an air of respectability. By the way, when they couldn't find volunteer test subjects, they bullied Puerto Rican medical students into participating. FDA approval was secured before opposition had time to build. And thank God it did. And unfortunately, we are flat out of time. Our thanks to Jeff Von Canel of the Sacramento News and Review, also the Chico and Reno News and Reviews, and our old pal, Mr. Will Durst. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time. Fashion. 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 Like style. Look, look, am the air. You think you know fashion, well fashion's a stranger You think fashion's your friend, my friend, fashion is danger Posing, posing at the bar, posing, posing sitting down, posing Posing in the distance. Posing. Posing with my arm. Posing. Posing with my leg. Posing. Posing like a swan. Posing. Posing for a portrait. Posing a threat. Hey. 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 Yeah.